Well, friends, good evening again and a, a warm welcome to McLean Press. My name is James Forsyth. I'm the senior pastor here, and it's one of my privileges week by week to stand up here with you and uh, look at God's Word, look at God's Word together. I am not the guy with all the answers. I am just the one who leads the charge as together we come to God's Word to understand more of His love for us and its implications for our lives. Tonight, we're continuing in a sermon series on the life of Solomon, and I invite you to turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 10. 1 Kings chapter 10, we're going to read verses 1 through 13 of this chapter. If you have a pew Bible, you want to take one from the pew rack in front of you, you'll find this on page 290. This is a a story about the Queen of Sheba, a story that is known well to Christians, to Muslims, to Jews. Uh, part of the Holy Scriptures. Tonight we turn to 1 Kings chapter 10 uh, to read uh, of this encounter together. So let's, let's read God's Word. Now when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to Solomon. Then verse 13, And King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired, whatever she asked besides what was given her by the bounty of King Solomon. So she turned and went back to her own land with her servants. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Okay, so our question tonight is, um, what do you do when something seems too good to be true? What do you do when something seems too good to be true? The Queen of Sheba has a lot to teach us. Let's remind ourselves of where we are at this part of the story. By the time that we arrive here in in chapter 10, as we arrive on the scene, Solomon has become famous. His fame has spread beyond the borders of Israel to, to all the nations. And three things have really stood out above the rest. First of all, he's become famous for his wisdom. 
Remember, he asked the Lord to make him wise. The Lord make it, made him the wisest man on earth. And now this, this rumor has spread that this is, this is the king that has the, the answers to, to all the hard questions. So forget the people that we think are wise. Remember, we said forget about Yoda, forget about Dumbledore, forget about Gandalf. King Solomon is the wisest man on earth. But not only is he famous for his wisdom, he's also become famous for his wealth. His wealth. Israel have become incredibly, lavishly, extravagantly rich under his leadership, and and word again has spread. So forget the rich people you might think of today, even Jeff Bezos and, and all the rest. Solomon is spectacularly wealthy. But he's famous for a third reason, verse 1 tells us, and, and, and the most important reason yet. He's not just famous for his wisdom, not just famous for his, for his wealth. Look at verse 1 where we read that he's also famous for his worship or for whom he worships. Verse 1, the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. So she heard about his wisdom, she heard about his wealth, but she heard about these things concerning the name of the Lord. Well, what does, what does that mean? Quite simply, it means that as word spread about Solomon, about all his wisdom and all his wealth, as word spread about him, the credit went to the Lord. The credit for Solomon's wisdom, the credit for Solomon's wealth went to God. People spoke of his success and said, yeah, but you know the reason he's like that. You know the reason he has all these things is because God has been good to him. Part of the the rumor that spread was that Israel was in this blessed condition because there was a God of grace who was being extravagantly good to them. And that's really, if you think more broadly, what God is doing at this point in Israel's history. He's blessing Solomon and he's blessing Israel in order to make them a picture in order to make them an illustration of what grace can do for the entire world, of what life in God's kingdom is really like here and in the next life. Now, of course, we know, don't we, that while Israel was the picture, the illustration of what it looks like to be blessed by God, this blessing, this grace was never intended to be for Israel alone, which is excellent news for us. Right? We're, not, we're not in Israel today, we're here in America. The gospel was intended not just for Israel, but to be for the ends of the earth. God was making an illustri- Israel an illustration of what grace would do for everyone. That had been God's plan from the beginning, to give grace to everyone. Solomon knew that this was God's plan from the beginning. Do you remember last time when we looked at the temple in chapter 8, we spoke about the ribbon cutting ceremony for, for the temple? And in verse 43, Solomon prayed these words. He said, um, would all the peoples of the earth know your name and fear you as do your people Israel? You've been good to us and now would all people know how good you are? And here in chapter 10 arrives the Queen of Sheba. Unmistakable evidence that Solomon's prayer is beginning to be answered. The rumor of God's grace has spread to the nations. Well, here we are, 3,000 years later, and the rumor of God's grace has, has reached us. Rumors of a, a wise and wealthy king whose grace enables us to live an abundant kingdom life. Of course, we're not talking about Solomon, we're talking about 
King Jesus. Now you say, is it not a bit of a stretch to suddenly apply this text to us in that way? Well, no, because that's exactly what Jesus does. Matthew chapter 12, you can turn there if you'd like, but in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus makes this connection for us. In verse 42, he's talking to a group of religious people, and he says these words. He says, the queen of the south, that's the queen of Sheba, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why? For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Don't you love that? Jesus says, Solomon, super impressive dude. Wisest man in all the earth. Richest man that you could imagine him ever being. And you know what? This guy, he has nothing on me. Some, something greater than Solomon is here. And I'm talking about me, Jesus says. I am the true source of all wisdom. I am the true source of all wealth. I am the one through whom grace comes that you might live the abundant kingdom life. And the queen of Sheba, Jesus says, she didn't have much to go on, but she acted on the little that she had. So you should do toward me what she did towards, towards Solomon. In fact, if, if you don't, she's going to rise up on the last day and, and judge you. You should do to me as she did toward Solomon. Well, that raises the question, doesn't it? What does she do toward Solomon? What is Jesus commending her for? What is he telling us to do? Here's the answer. The Queen of Sheba shows us what to do when something seems too good to be true. She shows us what to do when something seems too good to be true. We're going to see how, but first, let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this time together in your word that contains these enigmatic and evocative stories true accounts from history that have such vivid meaning for our lives today. So Lord, you've promised if we lack wisdom, we can ask and you'll give it to us. And so we pray for that wisdom now, that your spirit would give us that supernatural knowledge of Jesus, that we might know that we're loved and that we might order our lives around that love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Okay, so um, see if we're honest with ourselves. And <laughs> it's funny. You know, it should be easy. You'd think it'd be easy to be honest with yourself. Easy to know what you think. It turns out self-awareness is a surprisingly hard thing to have, right? But if we are, if we can stop and pause and think about Christianity for a second, if we're honest with ourselves, one of the problems we have, I'm not saying it's the only problem we have, but one of the problems we have, and I'm maybe suggesting one of the problems we should have, is that Jesus says a bunch of things that just seem too good to be true. Jesus says a bunch of things that just seem too good to be true. This is probably a challenge for you, perhaps, if you, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. If you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian tonight, uh, we understand that Jesus makes some really outlandish claims. Jesus says, hey, you know there is a God. God really exists. There is more to this world than just, just what you can see. There is a higher power, but he's not some vague force. His name is the Lord. And Jesus says, not only does this God exist, but this God, he made you. He made you and he, he placed you here on earth. And not only did he, did he make you, but he cares about you. In fact, he doesn't care about you, he loves you. And not just like he loves the world in some like vague, generic sense, or that he loves 
us in some kind of like, yay, humanity way, but no, like, he loves you specifically. He loves you personally. He knows your name, as we heard in our testimony tonight. And loves you with a love that is passionate and a love that is intense. And he knows, like, he, know, he loves you that way even though he knows you're not perfect. In fact, Jesus would say, this is actually why I came. I came because none of you are perfect. I came because, in fact, you've made a bunch of mistakes. And that's, that's why he comes to earth, to die on the cross, to take the punishment our sins deserve. So that we can be forgiven, full and free, welcomed into his family. It's a gift of grace, Jesus says, and if you receive this gift, your life, your life's going to be different. You're going to have new joy, new purpose, new hope. Do you know what? All of that sounds awesome. If it's true. <laughs> if it's true. But this, this, this problem, Jesus says things that seem too good to be true. It, it might be a problem for you if you're not a Christian, but it's, really, it's definitely a problem for all of us who would say that we are Christians. Why? Because Jesus continues to make a bunch of outlandish claims. So if you're a Christian tonight, let me speak to Christians for a second. Jesus says, says to you, and he says, he says to me, hey, Christian, you don't need to worry about anything ever. You're like, Jesus, I don't think you see my life. I'm not sure you're paying attention. Do you, like, do you see my circumstances? Do you, uh, I've got a bunch of things that I feel the need to worry about. Or get this one. Jesus says, hey, ask for anything in my name and it will be given to you. <laughs> um, really, Jesus? Who here, what Christian here prays like that's true? Or Jesus says, follow me and here's what your life's going to look like. If you follow me, your life's going to be full of love and joy and peace. And you're going to be the kind of person who's known for their patience and their kindness and their goodness, for their faithfulness, for their gentleness, for their, for their self-control. And we think, really, Jesus? Like, you, poor, we got a long way to go if you could have made me that kind of person. Jesus says these things that sound awesome. We're just not sure if they're true. And I, I wonder what it is for you tonight. What do you, you know, whether you're a Christian or, or not, what have you heard about Jesus that just seems too good to be true. Well, when we feel like that, we turn to the Queen of Sheba because she does three things that all of us must do. Point one, when things seem too good to be true, we want to be like the Queen of Sheba and point one, be the right kind of skeptic. Be the right kind of skeptic when things seem too good to be true. What do we mean? Well, look at verse seven. The Queen of Sheba flat out outright tell Solomon that she did not believe the reports that she'd heard about him. Richer than any other king? <laughs> that kind of sounds like PR, she says. Uh, the wisest man on earth? I'm sure he thinks he is, she says. Yeah. Uh, a God of grace who, who loves people? It sounds to me, the queen says in verse 7, that those people up in Israel have been smoking some pretty strong stuff, right? It's not exactly what verse 7 says, but it's like it's what she's saying in verse 7. She's a skeptic, but here's my point. She's the right kind of skeptic. Um, Phil, Phil Riken describes it this way. Uh, she's not the kind of skeptic that refuses to believe anything at all. She's the kind of skeptic who's committed to believing only what's true. See the difference here? She's, she's skeptical. She doesn't believe it. But she's not the kind of skeptic who's going to, going to refuse to believe anything. She's the kind of skeptic who's committed to believing only what is true. So she doesn't believe what she's heard, but she still makes the trip. She still makes the trip. Why? Because she's open to being wrong. 
She's open to learning more. She wants to know what's true. And what a great model that is for us as we explore the claims of Christianity, as we think about Jesus for our own lives. What is it that you personally find hard to believe? What is it maybe that's stopping you from becoming a Christian? Or what is it that's really holding you back as a Christian in your walk with Jesus? See, the Bible would say, hey, friends, it's okay to name those things. It's okay to to be skeptical. Just be the right kind of skeptic. Be the right kind of skeptic. So don't wall yourself off and refuse to believe anything. That's not being a skeptic. That's being a cynic dismissively kind of waving your hand and refusing to investigate any farther. Instead, be the kind of skeptic that's committed to believing only what is true. So don't just accept everything you hear, but be open. Be open to being wrong. Be open to learning more. Be open to discovering truth. And surely all of us should be that way because when it comes to our faith, who of us is gonna stand here and say, no, actually, I have everything right. I have everything right. In, in my views about God and in my theology, all of it is correct. I know that's not true in my theology. I'm, I'm wrong in a bunch of things. Problem is, I don't know what they are. Most dangerously of all, I don't, I don't know what they are. Now, I know Reformed Presbyterians, we're going we're to act like we have got all the right answers, but we don't. But we don't. No, nobody does. All of us want that dose of humility to say, hey, I might be wrong. <laughs> And I, I want to know the truth. I want to learn more. Because at the end of the day, isn't it true, friends? None of us wants to believe a lie. None of us want to believe a lie. But all of us should want to believe the truth. So if the claims of Jesus are false, it does not matter how inspiring they are. We should not believe them. If they're false, we, we should reject them. But if they're true, if they're true, if there is forgiveness for us, if there can be healing for us, no matter how broken you feel, if there's hope and purpose and joy in this life and a beautiful eternity that awaits, we shouldn't just believe it because it sounds good. We must believe it because it's true. Because it's true. So let's be the right kind of skeptics. When we find things about Christianity or Jesus uh, hard to believe, when they seem perhaps too good to be true, point one, let's be the right kind of skeptics. Point two, though, with that kind of internal disposition, that internal uh, commitment to discover those things that are true, let's move out into the world uh, to, point two, ask all of our questions. When you find something hard to believe, uh, be the right kind of skeptic, but secondly, ask all of your questions. Let's look at verse one and two together where we see a great example again in the queen. She's heard these wild reports. Frankly, she doesn't believe them, but she determines to find out more. And so she goes to Jerusalem. She meets Solomon. And verse one, she gets straight down to business. She came to test him, we read, with hard questions. Verse two, she told him all that was on her mind. Don't you love this woman? She shows up and she just, she doesn't hold back. She doesn't hold back. She's thought about it. She's thought about her doubts. She's thought about things she doesn't believe. She's got some hard questions for him and she gets straight to it. And she doesn't say, oh, King Solomon, these are the things you believe. Here are the things I believe. Let's just agree to disagree and uh, all coexist. That's not what she says. She says, hey, I've got some, Solomon, I've heard some stuff and I've got some questions. 
And I'm, I'm not really believing. Let, let me tell you everything that is on my mind. She lays it all out there before the king. And again, isn't that a great model for us? <laughs> I mean, certainly if, you, if you're not a Christian, you certainly shouldn't reject it before you've explored it. Because it might be true. So ask your questions. And if you are a Christian, so often Christians kind of get lulled into the sense of like, well, I believe in Jesus, but there's just so much I struggle with. And it's like, okay, what are you, when you say there's so much you struggle with, what are we talking about? Let, can we, let's not settle for this kind of vague sense of doubt that just serves like a, a wet blanket over the faith. Let's, let's work through, okay, what are the questions that I have? What are the things I struggle with? Let's name them. Let's be like the Queen of Sheba. Let's ask them. So if you're not a Christian, I'm sure you've got questions. Perhaps you wonder, hey, um, you know, if God is good, how come there's so much evil and suffering in the world? If God is, is good, why, why do we need a ministry like IGM? Or, or perhaps you wonder, if, if God is loving, how, how, how can he send people to hell? What's that about? Or maybe you've got questions because of the Christians that you know. Maybe you're like, why are our... Why do evangelicals make such a fuss about homosexuality and then neglect the poor? Those are, those are some great questions. If you are a Christian, what, what are your questions? Again, let's not settle for a, a kind of vague sense of doubt. Let's name our questions and, and pursue them. Perhaps you're struggling because you believe, but there's some things about God that you don't really like. Or perhaps you, you, you believe, but you're struggling because... You don't understand why God hasn't answered some of your prayers? Or perhaps you believe, but you're struggling because you don't really see what, what is he up to in your life or in, in the life of some of your loved ones and, and friends. These are all great questions. I've wrestled with them all. I continue to wrestle with them still. Christians, remember, you can be a Christian and have a ton of questions. Here's the key point that I would just long for us to live into tonight. This church, this church, this group of people, this is not the place where you come to pretend you believe all the right answers. This is the place where you come to ask your best questions. This is not the place you come to pretend you believe the right answers. It's such an uncompelling vision of life together. So, okay, Sunday night, let's go to the suburbs and smile and look nice and have a very happy evening together and then go home no more sure of our faith than when we first arrived. Like, people, there's good basketball on tonight. Let's go watch that instead, right? <laughs> if, that, if that's what we're doing here, Really? It's not the place you come to pretend you believe the right answers. This is the place we come to ask our hardest questions. Now, this is true for us all, but let me just say a couple things quickly. First of all, this is particularly important, and I particularly want our, our, our kids and our teens, our young people, our students, to understand that this is true of this church. That this isn't the place you have to come and pretend. is isn't the place you have to come and give the right answer. Um, this is the place where, where Jesus is present and you can come with your questions. And so whatever your questions are, be like the queen, ask him. What are your questions? What do you want to know about? Perhaps you grew up in the church, but you just find, is this all really true, right? Or maybe there are particular things in the Bible that you, have, you have, just have a hard time with. 
Or maybe you've got questions about sex or relationship or a whole ton of other things. Whatever your questions are, let's ask them. Let's talk about them together. And a quick word to parents. Parents, um, nothing could be more important than for us to uh, encourage honest questions over polite pretending. If you're a parent, um, encourage honest questions over polite pretending. What do I mean by that? I mean whether or not your kids feel they can question the faith will largely depend on the atmosphere you create in your home. And so here's, here's my desire for parents in our church. Can we just agree together? Hey, yeah, I've got a bunch of kids too, right? I'm in this mess with you. Let's just agree together. We are going to waste zero energy, zero energy on worrying about whether our kids behave in church. Right? <laughs> right. We're just not going to do that, right? Um, we're not going to do it for at least two reasons. First of all, when they're little, it's an impossible goal, right? Get over it, okay? Secondly, we're not going to do that because even if we succeeded, it would be completely lame. So I've got a bunch of kids, right? I say a bunch, four. I do know how many, okay? Um, I have a bunch of kids, and I'm going to stand before Jesus, and I'm going to be responsible for them, you know, before the Lord, right? And is this what I'm going to say to Jesus? Hey, Jesus, when we were in church, they did not squirm. Like, what's going to, Jesus going to say to that? He's going to be like, what? <laughs> that, that is an epic irrelevance, James. That is not why I placed you in their lives. So that they could show up, look nice, pretend, and give the right answer. Do you think that's what I'm doing here? No. Sure, you can want your kids to pay attention to church, but only so that they'll hear about the good news of Jesus, and that will actually wreck their lives like it's wrecking ours. So let's take, see, all that energy that we're not going to spend over here, okay? We take all that, we've saved it up, and we're going to pour that into making the, our homes the kind of places where our kids can talk. Let's, let's do that together. And, you know, I said that's particularly important for our students. It is, but it's, it's really important for us all. Um, it's important for our kids. It's important for our big kids, right? For our church to be a place that is a, it's a truth-seeking church. So they're not just in our youth group or our discipleship groups, but in our Sunday school classes, in our community groups, in our conversations together on a Sunday night, as we talk with our pastors or our elders or other members or just our friends, that we would discuss really what's on our hearts. I only have one caveat, right? I have one caveat to that ask whatever you want thing, right? And it's not, but don't ask about this. <laughs> it's um, Jesus has all the answers. Solomon has all the answers. James does not, right? Um, Jesus has all the answers because he's God. Solomon has all the answers because God made him the wisest man on earth and he prefigured, he was a picture of Jesus to come, right? Your pastors, your elders, your community group leaders, your parents do not have all the answers. So the commitment, you know, I've often said there are no stupid questions, but there are stupid answers. And our commitment is not to have an answer to everything, but to say, man, that's a really great question. Let's wrestle with that. Let's try to figure it out. Let's walk through these doubts together. So, when things seem too good to be true, what do you do? Point one, be the right kind of skeptic. Point two, ask all your best questions. Third, and I think most importantly, if you're wrestling with, with questions or doubts tonight, third and most importantly, when things seem too good to be true, 
be like the Queen of Sheba, and come see for yourself. Come see for yourself. What do I mean here? Well, the scene that we uh, see uh, in verse 1 is actually quite unusual. State visits are very common today, you know, especially in this town. We always hear about important leaders arriving and, you know, our leaders going elsewhere. That's a common thing, but it's actually a very unusual thing to happen in Solomon's day. In Solomon's day, someone like the Queen of Sheba wouldn't travel such long distances. Instead, she'd simply send emissaries who would go on her behalf, gather reports, and come back. And yet there's something about this situation that's different. There's something about this situation that is unusual. The queen has heard remarkable reports of of wisdom and wealth and, and, and worship. And so she decides, this is one that I've got to go see for myself. And so she ups and leaves from modern-day Yemen and travels a 1,000 miles north to Jerusalem. This is why Jesus refers to her as as the Queen of the South in Matthew, because uh, Yemen, modern-day Yemen, is is directly uh, south of of Jerusalem. A 1,000-mile journey, likely on a camel, taking her at least two months, because she is determined to go and see this for herself. Now, what's the result of this personal quest? Let's look at the rest of the chapter together very quickly. Three things happen because she comes to see for herself. First of all, in verse 7, she believes. I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Not only does she believe because she comes to see for herself, but secondly, she also worships. Look at verse 9. Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. She makes the connection. Yeah, this isn't just about your wisdom. This isn't just about your wealth. This is about the Lord. And, and blessed be the Lord. Praise to God for his goodness. She believes. She worships. And thirdly, because she came to see for herself, she's blessed. Look at verse 13. King Solomon gave to the Queen of Sheba all that she had desired whatever she asked, besides what was given her by the bounty of King Solomon. I love this because, remember a few weeks ago, we looked at Solomon, he asked for wisdom, God gave him wisdom and blessed him with everything else. Well, Solomon remembered, oh, that, that's, how, that's how generosity works. And so he gives the Queen of Sheba what she's looking for, answers, and then blesses her with wealth. I'm gonna give you what you're looking for, and then I'm gonna bless you with everything else as well, because she came to see for herself, verse 5 says that she went home breathless. Do you know the origin of that phrase was in the Bible? <laughs> there was no more breath in her, the text says. She left worshiping, believing, blessed. And again, what a great model that is for us that we would be a people who would come and see Jesus for ourselves. See, I'm concerned if you've been around our church for a while, you, you, you've heard me talk about the problem of um, the vicarious Christian life. What I mean by this is the idea that, you know, if you're not a Christian, you've rejected it because you read a book that said some things or you listened to a speaker who made some compelling points. You've rejected it because of what other people have said. Or if you are a Christian, you're living your Christian life, but only with reference to someone else. So you can tell me, everything Tim Keller's book said about prayer and you don't pray (laughs) or you can tell me everything John Piper says about missions because it's awesome when he talks about it but you you yourself aren't aren't actively engaged 
And you can tell me what the latest blogger, tweeter, etc. says about this, that, or the next thing, but we're not actually engaging ourselves with the Lord to discover him for ourselves. Whether you're a Christian or not, the most important thing you can do for tonight is come and see Jesus for yourself. And the good news is, um, you don't have to travel a thousand miles by camel to do it. The good news is that Jesus has revealed himself to us in his word and through prayer. Word and prayer. You say, Puh, that, that's a little underwhelming. I say, just try it. Just try it. If you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, the best way to come and see Jesus is to come and read his word. Come and read the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. First four books of the New Testament. John tells us that these books were written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing we might have life in his name. In other words, these books were written that you might see him for yourself and receive his gifts of grace. So come and see him. Read about his life. He does some amazing things. He says a bunch of wild and crazy and amazing things. And then read about his death. Start to understand why it is that he came to, to die on the cross on our behalf. If you want to see Jesus, come see him on the cross. And then, then read about his resurrection. Read about the fact that death could not hold him. That the veil tore before, before him. That he, he rose again conquering sin and death. And a triumphant life post-grave that he now gives to us. Come and, come and read about these things for yourself. And as you do so, as you, as you read God's word to see Jesus, I encourage you to pray. You say, I'm not a religious person. Prayer seems weird, okay? I say, totally, right? This idea, hey, let's all close our eyes and talk to a being we can't see, right? That sounds more like the asylum than the church. I get it, but just try it. And he, here's, here's what you can pray. Just pray, God, I'm not sure I believe in you. But if all this is true and you're out there, show me. Amen. God, I, I, I don't know if I believe all this stuff. But I want to believe what's true. So if, if this is true, show me. And you'll be surprised. You'll be surprised how the God that truly exists does a powerful work by his spirit. Whereby he is convincing people that he does exist and that the gospel is true. And you're in a room with people who have banked their very eternities and are basing their very lives on the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ that they have seen with their own lives, eyes is worth giving their lives to. Come see him, come pray, see what happens for you. If you are a Christian, same principles remain. Of course, we've said discuss things in community, talk about things, questions in community. We hold on to that idea. And now to that, we add the ideas of, of the word and prayer. So be intentional about figuring out what are my questions and then how does the Bible speak to these? What does Jesus have to say about my worries? What does Jesus have to say about my doubts? What does Jesus have to say about how I'm, how I'm living my life? What does he say to the questions that you have? And as you search the scriptures, do so with prayer. Isn't it amazing, you know, as Christians, just how often um, we worry about things, think about things, talk about things, and never pray about those same things. That's just a, that's just a thing we do, right? 
So you're talking to a friend who's a Christian about all these worries you have, and they say, oh, did you, have you prayed about it? And you're like, you know. Um, ally your study of the word with, with prayer. Bring these concerns to him. Leave your worries with him. Ask him for strength and grace. Come to him regularly and see just what a difference it makes. Come see for yourself. You might end up believing, worshiping, blessed. You know, I believe that anyone who is willing to take a serious look at Jesus will find out that he's everything he's advertised to be and more. And if you come to him through the word, through prayer, you yourself can believe. And not only believe, but you'll say, hey, before I thought this was too good to be true, now I realize I I hadn't heard the half of it. Come to him in the word of prayer, see him for yourself, and you'll end up worshiping. Saying with the Queen of Sheba, blessed be the Lord. I praise him for all he is and all he's done. Come see for yourself, prayer in the word. You might end up being blessed. Because you know Christians will tell you, there is, uh, Jesus is better than any earthly wealth. Having Jesus in your life is better than any earthly wealth. Hey, last sentence. If all that sounds too good to be true, that's okay. But be the right kind of skeptic and ask all of your questions. Come see for yourself. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I love that you're the kind of God who is gentle with his kids. It would be easy to imagine you, to picture you as a God who is angry or frustrated with us when we have a hard time believing things about you. It'd be easy to think that you'd sort of be petulant about that and feel like, hey, after all I've done for them, they can't even even believe in me. But that's just not who you are. You're patient with us. And so you welcome our questions, you welcome our doubts, you welcome our fears, our worries, our concerns. And like you did with the Queen of Sheba, like you did with Job, like you did with Thomas, like you did with so many uh, believers in the Bible and so many of us here tonight, you meet us in these places. And um, enable us to believe. Enable us to worship. We even find that we're blessed. So we, we come to you in Jesus' name, thanking you for your goodness. Amen.